Welcome to the September 23rd, 2007 podcast of Reverend Liz and Friends at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Silver Spring. for something completely different. We've got a couple of excerpts from a book called Born to Kvetch by a really, really interesting, brilliant Jewish linguist and historian named Michael Wex. So, for example, the Israelites are on the edge of the Red Sea with Pharaoh and his hosts closing fast behind them. God has been plaguing the Egyptians left and right and has just finished killing every one of their firstborn males. The Israelites are understandably nervous, but there's a big difference between being slightly apprehensive and actually insulting the agent of your deliverance. And they said to Moses, What? There's no graves in Egypt? You had to take us off into the desert to die. What did we tell you in Egypt? Get off our backs and let us serve the Egyptians, because serving the Egyptians is better than dying in the desert. That's all from Exodus. It's there without the slightly Jewish intonation if you want to look it up. (laughs) This sort of thing constitutes what might be called the basic kvetch, the initial declaration of unhappiness that identifies the general area of complaint. Had Isaac Newton been struck by a potato kugel instead of an apple... The whole world, all the Jews in the congregation are all, we're like, ha, 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 potato kugel, which, which the rest of you can well imagine is a traditional Jewish food. The whole world would now know that for every basic kvetch, there is also an equal and opposite counter kvetch, (laughs) a retaliation in kind provoked by the original complaint. Such counterfetching also appears in the Bible, most notably when God decides to answer the Israelites' complaints about the food in the desert by giving them something to fetch about. <laughs> the Jews want meat instead of the manna that they've been getting. This is in Numbers 11. Moses tells them, God's going to give you meat and you're going to eat it. Not one day, not two days, not five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but for a month you're going to eat it until it's coming out of your noses. (laughs) And they get meat all right. Quails, hundreds and hundreds of quails, and for dessert they get a plague. Thus ends the 11th chapter of the book of Numbers. And in the first sentence of chapter 12, we are told that Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. So kvetching is to the human soul, is to the Jewish soul as breathing is to the Jewish body. So, I mean, that's how Numbers ends, is the people have been kvetching, and God says, you want to kvetch? I'll give you something to kvetch about. And then that ends with a whole lot of, of turmoil and distress, and what's the first thing that happens in the next chapter? They kvetch again, so... This is a great book. I, I mean, being half Jewish myself, I ate this book up and gave it to a lot of people I know who, thought, uh, who I thought would enjoy it. So if anybody is wondering if it's a good gift, it is. Now, combine that institutionalized contrariness of the kvetcher with the fundamental absurdity of Jewish existence in the world. We are God's chosen people. It says so over and over in the Bible. His favorites. And how does he show it? 
Just look at Jewish history. Persecution and pariahhood are both tributaries of the one big river of Gullus, exile, the fundamental fact of Jewish life for the last couple of thousand years. Indeed, scholars question whether pre-exilic Judean society can even be called Jewish in the sense in which we now understand the term. Judaism is defined by exile, and exile without complaint is tourism. (laughs) Not deportation. Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. If we stop fetching, how will we know that life isn't supposed to be like this? If we don't keep kvetching, we'll forget who we really are. Kvetching lets us remember that we've got nowhere to go because we are so special. Kvetching lets us know that we're in exile, that the Jew and hence Jewish is out of place everywhere all the time. Yiddish, the, last, the national language of nowhere, is the spoken and written version of this displacement. And its single best-known expression, found numerous times in the Bible, is hardly a word at all. Oi. (laughs) Is the involuntary expression of shock and dismay produced when a medicine ball of tsuris, troubles, trials, and tribulations, slams into your gut without any warning. The air that's been exiled from your innards departs your body in the form of a krechts a moan or a groan that begins in the kishka zone between the navel and the spine and then proceeds up your chest and throat, gathering momentum until it issues from your mouth. And this unwilled rush of breath, this kishka-driven release of disaffected air is the primal phoneme, the embryonic unit of kvetch. The fact that the term krechts is also used to denote the musical sob characteristic of so much klezmer music helps to underline the more significant fact that Yiddish has produced an aesthetic in which the ideas of beauty and standards of artistic worth are inextricably linked to expressions of longing and pain. Rooted as it is in the long wait for a Messiah who's in no hurry to get here, Yiddish sometimes approaches fulfillment, but never quite achieves it. Until the Messiah comes and the temple is rebuilt, there isn't much apart from pining and dissatisfaction. Disappointment, awareness of the difference between things as they are and things as they're supposed to be, is the basis of kvetching. And the krechts, the involuntary physical reaction to the revelation of things as they are, is the dynamic force that powers it. Probably the most famous pronouncement of Jesus is on forgiveness, one that has profoundly impacted Western morality uh, ever since, is what he says in chapter 5 of the book of Matthew. Quote, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your outer garment, give your undergarment as well. And if one of the occupation troops forces you to carry his pack one mile, go two. There are different interpretations of what Jesus meant by this. 
whether there was hidden irony or even humor in what he said, in whether he was preaching to Jews persecuted by Romans or to poor people and slaves subject to the whims of rich owners and rulers, including Jews. But regardless of the nuances and details of his original intent, it is undeniably an injunction to nonviolence, an indictment of the contemporary eye-for-an-eye justice. The moral vision in his pronouncement has been much more significant for interpersonal interactions and wrongs than for cultural or national wrongs, at least since the end of the early Christian movement and Christianity's adoption as the state religion of the Roman Empire, Christians have earnestly struggled over how and when to turn the other cheek as individuals, while wholeheartedly participating in nations that are committed to violence for revenge or deterrence. Presently, this dynamic plays out in everything from how to respond to a personal slight or insult to both the personal and policy issues inherent in the debate over the death penalty. Many people contend with the onus Matthew lays on the wronged to be bigger than the wrongdoer and rise above the hurt that we suffer. And sometimes this has led to extraordinary achievement. It is a cornerstone of the remarkable nonviolent healing work done by Bishop Desmond Tutu and the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions in South Africa. And sometimes it has led to extraordinary injustice. Matthew 5 was for centuries a foundational text that clergy used in adjuring wives to stay with and obedient to dangerously abusive husbands and fathers. Like any conceptual model, its virtue and efficacy lie in its application rather than in the model itself. This morning, we are considering another way, also arising out of biblical heritage and interpretation, and that is the Jewish model. This system is not actually that contemporaneous eye-for-an-eye model that Jesus critiqued so long ago. It is one that has evolved over many centuries before and since Jesus Like many aspects of Judaism, it has numerous aspects and layers, especially those iterated in the Talmud. But also, like many aspects of Judaism, it has a summary version. For the majority of folks who are not Talmudic scholars and don't wish to have to call their rabbi to negotiate every instance of wrong. Perhaps the most important point of the Jewish system of forgiveness is that the onus to invoke forgiveness is on the wrongdoer and not on the wronged. The wrongdoer is the one responsible for any forgiveness that follows on what they do. It's meant to work this way. The wrongdoer, I'm sorry, I couldn't come up with another acceptable term, so you're going to hear that a lot this morning. The wrongdoer does a bad thing, which hurts someone else. And the person who has been hurt can just stay hurt. As far as forgiveness goes, they don't have to do anything. Which makes sense, because after all, they're the one that's been injured, and it's often enough that they have to deal with that injury and whatever fallout it entails. Whatever happens next for forgiveness is that the person who did the injury has to own up, apologize, and ask for forgiveness. And, this is crucial, they have to do all of this directly to the person that they hurt. Unlike in Catholicism, for instance, where confessing to a priest and thence to God can win expiation, in Judaism there is nothing doing, absolution-wise, 
unless the admission and atonement happens directly with the person who suffered the wrong. In fact, the human dimension of this religious model is so critical that divine forgiveness, the kind that gets people written into the book of life for another year every Jewish New Year, that can't even begin to happen, no matter what. No matter how much we go to worship services, no matter how much we pray privately, no matter how many good deeds we do to atone or outweigh the wrong, there's access to God, there's no access to God unless and until we've made things right on the mortal plane with the person we've hurt. This is a human-based religious system for forgiveness. And for those of us ultimately concerned with how we live in this world, that makes its ethical dimension very powerful. It is a theological system of right relations that says we are under obligation to the person that we've hurt. In fact, this system is very explicit about what is owed and what must be done. The three steps are clear and non-negotiable. We owe them our admission of what we did. We owe it to them that we ask their forgiveness. We owe them an offer that lets us make it up to them, howsoever we can, howsoever they choose. Here's another kicker. We are not off the hook in this system unless the person we've wronged says we are. In other words, if we wrong someone and go through the steps, admitting it to them and asking truly for their forgiveness and asking to make it up to them somehow, they can say no. They can refuse to forgive us and refuse to allow us to make it up to them. Now, at this point, things get complicated. According to Jewish law, This exchange can go back and forth three times. And if forgiveness is still refused, then somebody can bring in the rabbi to help out. Because while the onus is on the wrongdoer to initiate this interaction, there is still also some pressure on the one who's been wronged to eventually forgive. Forgiveness is not just a whim, and it's not something we can just withhold because we're feeling grouchy. If we're going to withhold it, we need to take it very seriously and have a really good reason. Because not only is this about the relationship between the two parties or the care and ethical treatment that human beings owe each other, it's also still about God. Remember that that divine aspect of forgiveness doesn't come into play. It can't, period. Unless obligations on the human level have been satisfied, And what happens if that doesn't happen is very tangible. One doesn't get written into the book of life the next new year in the season of divine judgment. It's not about burning later in hell. The threat is more immediate. You put your life here and now in jeopardy when you walk around with unforgiven wrongs attached to you. So we have to do our best to win forgiveness, but also the wronged person needs to try to rise to the occasion and forgive us when so much is depending upon their forgiveness. These implications support the ethics of the system. The apology and the forgiveness have to be genuine to be meaningful, which enjoins the wrongdoer to really offer an authentic apology. And being authentically apologized to and receiving true offers to make it up to us hopefully makes it more possible for us to truly accept the apology and find it in our hearts, the space and the spirit of forgiveness.
Because of the Jewish high holiday's dependence on forgiveness and atonement, this interaction of the wrongdoer and the wronged is a particular tradition at that time of year. Along with other rituals enacted at home and at synagogue, Jewish people make a point of having conversations to clear the boards and make sure that all is right with them, even if they're not aware of having done anything wrong. Because this discipline of forgiveness is one that has great appeal for me, I practice it. And because the Unitarian Universalist New Church Year tends to roughly coincide with the Jewish New Year, I find it a good time for my own atonement. I don't know how many Unitarian Universalists are making these Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur phone calls, but I have done it for years. It's gotten so that if I call a loved one during that period of 10 days, the days of awe, which fall between the New Year and the Day of Atonement, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, they'll just ask, is this the phone call? (laughs) And sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. And so then it sometimes becomes the phone call, (laughs) even if I originally dialed for another reason, because it's hard to delay that sort of conversation once it's been referenced. But that conversation needn't only be a Jewish or once-a-year conversation. The convention that makes it an annual tradition is only to make sure people don't enter the new year with blots on their souls' escutcheons. It's then a sort of safety net in case some hurt or wrong has gotten missed along the way. But this model for apology, forgiveness, and atonement is good year-round. It is a lesson in being a good person regardless of which end we are on. If we are the forgiver, it is good to be asked for forgiveness and good to have some sense of obligation to strive to forgive. And if we are the forgiven, or at least the hoping to be forgiven, it is far more fair that the burden to enjoin forgiveness lies with us and that we should have to ask for another's grace and to offer not only our confession but also our commitment to atone because confession is not only always enough to make something right. Atonement should always be offered. Nikos Kazantzakis' words may remind us that sometimes for myriad reasons forgiveness may not be available from one that we have wronged. There is a great short story called The Sunflower, which turns on the ethical question of whether someone else has the ability, right, or obligation to offer absolution on behalf of others. If I do a sermon series on forgiveness, those difficult and dark questions will be addressed. But for this morning, we are considering forgiveness when it is available, at least potentially, for the asking when forgiveness is contextualized by an imperative and operational relational dynamic. I don't have dramatic personal stories to illustrate this dynamic. I have small piddly ones that are not worth a sermon. Mostly, I try to apologize and offer atonement right in the moment, and I try not to miss instances when I fear that they are there. This means that my annual phone calls tend to be comfortingly anticlimactic, though occasionally someone tells me that, in fact, there is something. But there is a handy example right now in public life, of all places, in country music that illustrates this dynamic beautifully. Some of you are nodding. I can't help but wonder, do you actually know what I'm going to, what I'm going to throw out there? Some of you may be familiar with a country band called the Dixie Chicks. They came out a couple of weeks ago with a preview song from their upcoming album, and it's called Not Ready to Make Nice. 
Back in 2003, during a concert in London, their lead singer made some very disparaging remarks about President Bush. And the backlash in America was immediate. Many country radio stations boycotted their songs, and some even held gatherings for fans to come and burn and destroy their Dixie Chicks CDs. And though the overall fan response seems to have been somewhat mixed, certainly the dramatically angry fans got a lot of press. So it's hard to know what the breakdown between support and criticism really was. Certainly the Chicks got a lot of hate mail, including death threats. And their new song is all about this. And their lyrics include these lines, forgive, sounds good, forget, I'm not sure I could. They say time heals everything, but I'm still waiting. I'm through with doubt. There's nothing left for me to figure out. I've paid a price, and I'll keep on paying. I'm not ready to make nice. I'm not ready to back down. I'm still mad as hell, and I don't have time to go round and round and round. It's too late to make it right. I probably wouldn't if I could, because I'm mad as hell. Can't bring myself to do what it is you think I should. I made my bed and I sleep like a baby with no regrets, and I don't mind saying it's a sad, sad story when a mother will teach her daughter that she ought to hate a perfect stranger. And how in the world can the words I said send somebody so over the edge that they'd write a letter to me saying that I'd better shut up and sing or my life will be over? I'm not ready to make nice. I'm not ready to back down. I'm still mad as hell. And I don't have time to go round and round and round. Judaism would say to the chicks, fine, you don't have to make nice. You are owed apologies and atonement. And until those who wronged you do so, you owe them nothing but the honest truth of your hurt and your outrage. In other words, you've given them what you owed them, this song. This example, political and current as it is, points to one other aspect of this issue, which is ironically apolitical and timeless. The power of words, according to Judaism. Genesis tells us that God spoke the world into existence. It didn't take gestures. Think about it. Isn't that interesting? It didn't take gestures, which is sometimes associated with, you know, supernatural creative uh, experiences. It didn't take ingredients. In the absence of everything but the ultimate void, there is still the word as the creative foundation of all. Words have ontological power in Judaism. And this is part of the point in Michael Wex's book. He doesn't talk about forgiveness, actually, in this very funny study of language and very brilliant study of language. But he's all about language. And as it turns out, Jews are all about language, too. Wex reminds us that in the long-time debate in Western philosophy about whether a word is just a label or whether a thing somehow participates in its name, whether essence is shared between a thing and its name, that Jews come down firmly on one side. The name, the word, matters. This is why you can't utter the name of God. Wex writes baldly, call a rose a pile of crap and the flower turns into something else. It's not just names or nouns, it's everything. In a world as fragile and chaotic as the world of Jews historically has been, there was a lot of reason for kvetching, 
And there was also a lot of reason for superstition and folk religion and interpretation and invocation, all of which was expressed in words. This meant people complained and spoke badly even when things were good. This also meant that there were strong relationships between vernacular expressions, even slang or tasteless expressions, and biblical Talmudic interpretation. I can't imagine what that would be like uh, in, in our contemporary American society. But an example, for reasons that would take far too long to explain here, but he's got two pages on it. A woman who's endowed along the lines of Dolly Parton was spoken of as having beautiful little Moseses and Aaronses. <laughs> and there is a reason. Judaism prohibits naming people for friends or family who are still alive so that those currently possessing the name will still live with it for a long time. To say, quote, may that name come home with someone else attached to it, unquote, is another way of saying he should drop dead. (laughs) Blessings and curses are pronounced with creativity and verve. Michael Wex devotes a whole chapter in his book to Yiddish cursing. I have an example. I thought you guys would be interested. We don't talk a lot about cursing in Unitarian Universalism. You should own a thousand houses with a thousand rooms in each house and a thousand beds in every room, and you should sleep each night in a different bed, in a different room, in a different house, and get up every morning. So far, it sounds good. And get up every morning and go down a different staircase and get into a different car driven by a different chauffeur who should drive you to a different doctor, and he shouldn't know what's wrong with you either. (laughs) That's obviously a more modern curse. Uh, older curses, going back to the old country, I'm not going to do them in Yiddish, just in English. May you itch all over your body. He's got heaps of them. I'm just picking a few particularly interesting ones. May you itch all over your body. They're really good. If you think about any of these in detail, that's a serious curse right there. May you itch all over your body. May your gallbladder burst. May you be turned around by the navel. Yeah, every woman who's given birth is like... You should have a stabbing pain in your sides. You should have angina. Your brain should dry up. Pepper in your nose. Salt in your eyes. And my favorite, the final one on this page, may your eyes crawl out of your head. (laughs) These really get at the hardest stuff. They're all about health, and who doesn't care about their health? The potent language reflects a potent culture and applies as much to the Hebrew Bible and ancient Judaism as to more recent developments. This is why in Genesis, when Jacob presents himself as his older brother Esau and thus obtains his father Isaac's blessing that was intended for his firstborn son, there is no redress. Esau later asks Isaac to give him the blessing he intended to give him, and Isaac can't. It's already gone. It's been spent despite the deception that engendered the spending of it. It's an ancient religious principle that secular psychologists would support. Words matter. They can't be unsaid. The power they convey happens, and it is real, and it affects things. They exist in history. 
They change people and events on scales small and large, and they cannot, therefore, be underestimated. That power of words is an essential component for our understanding of the Jewish model of forgiveness. It has to be authentic. It has to be done right. And if it is done right and authentically, its redemptive power is great. Just as, indeed, we do feel great redemption in lived experiences of forgiveness. And if it is done wrong or inauthentically, its damning power is great. Just as, indeed, we do feel a terrible burden in our lived experiences of accusation, blame, and condemnation. There is a lesson and a power here for all people. The accountability, the relationality, the intentionality of this system of forgiveness makes it profoundly relevant for all people at any time. What does it teach society to embrace the the turn-the-other-cheek model of forgiveness? Idealized as an injunction to lift ourselves above pettiness and retribution, it arguably also diminishes the moral sense of individuals and of society at large to target the injured, holding them inexplicably them accountable for unsolicited forgiveness or acceptance. To be unshriven is a bad state of affairs, but to be unforgiven surely ought to be much worse. And we should not be able to excuse or forgive ourselves in the absence of forgiveness from one we have wronged. And we should not have to excuse or forgive others when they have not even sought our forgiveness. What does it mean, and here's the reason why, what does it mean to us if we hold that we cannot live or act alone, accountable only to ourselves? What does it offer us to believe that we hold each other's lives and futures in our hands as we do? That we are responsible to each other as we are? that no higher good can flourish if we live in denial of those fundamental truths, as it cannot. That we must live gently with each other as people of faith, if we are to live at all, as we must. Amen.